For those that are loyal listeners know that uh, last uh, last week's TPS5 talked a lot about working from home. Uh, there are some of those scenarios that haven't worked out so well for folks. I think everybody knows about the, or maybe has seen the video of the BBC guy interrupted by his kid. Workingmother.com actually has other hilarious work from home fails. Like one that says that their daughter picked a great time to have her one and only tantrum while on the phone with a new client laid down in the middle of the street. The light was changing. There's several ones on here about, you know, being on conference calls and kids start throwing up. I actually was interviewing someone from for the podcast once, Reed, and her child, right in the middle of the interview, decided to throw a temper tantrum. I recorded the whole thing and promised to blackmail her about her parenting styles afterwards because she had to scold and discipline the child. Another example here, mom talks about, you know, you think it's easier as the kids get older. It's not because then it's like they're like full on fighting and like cussing each other in the background and stuff. I, I just think that this is the day and age where we just have to accept that kids are there, right? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome back to a special edition, not really a special edition, but I am back working from home for episode number 164, which we'll get into the topic and whatnot. But after last week's TPS5, it's fitting, but much like uh, many of you listening, I have now been uh, in the rest of our office, not me specifically, uh, have been sent to the house. So I did probably the first 140 of these, 130 of these from home, maybe. So anyway, now I'm back after a brief hiatus of doing them not from home. I have always recorded these from home. It's interesting that you only did about half of them from home. But yeah, it's just now my wife's working remotely with me. And so we're, we're doing a lot of the dancing around like, who's going to take the office for the first half of the day? Who's going to take it for the second half of the day kind of things? That is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. Thanks again for tuning in and for uh, telling a friend. Uh, matter of fact, now that you're working from home, just put these on in the background. Just listen to all of them. This is 164. Maybe jump in around... A hundred. See if you can listen to the last 60. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But seriously, if you want to let us know, we can make some good recommendations or you can listen to our best of shows and hear the uh, what we thought were the best episodes from those previous years, if you so choose. Again, touchpoint.health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe. You can also go out to the website and see what else is on the Touchpoint network of shows. We've got some really cool episodes from the exam room that have come out over the last couple of weeks. Quick listens, three, four, five minutes long that you should uh, definitely tune in for. So before we jump into today's show, let's take a brief pause and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. 
Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Top of mind for all of us listening in is what's happening in the world today with the pandemic. And for particularly for those of us in the marketing and communication space, we know that the current state of affairs in marketing and comms for hospitals and health systems is a lot different than it was not even a month ago. Oh, for sure. You know, you might think, well, okay, well, there's probably some content I'm going to have to produce, some infographics, you know, things like that that may be coming down the down the track, but nothing to what we're you know, now in the middle of, I wouldn't think. Obviously, this is not just impacting hospitals and health systems, for sure. I've seen some really good examples of organizations outside of healthcare that are actually marketing and communicating differently in this day and age. I mean, obviously, we're all getting deluged by those emails from all the various different brands about their response to COVID-19. I remember those starting up about a month ago. And now I know all the lists that I'm subscribed to because I'm getting an email from everybody about what they're doing. Um, But have you seen any good examples, Reed, that are not healthcare related of ways that organizations are communicating? No, I delete them all immediately. (laughs) Um, Because now I've heard from every CEO of every company, uh, like you're saying, of of every list I've ever uh, given my email address to. One example that pops up for me is a local grocery store chain, and actually a pretty big one that serves sort of the Midwest area. They put a commercial out that really kind of positioned the fact that they're there for us. They they put a, a message of like, we're, we're in this with you. We're going to continue to be there. We're going to continue to deliver groceries to you. They kind of reinforce that the supply chain is strong and that, you know, the safety measures that they're doing all within the context of a 30 second spot, which I thought was really powerful and kind of reframed their role and how they're helping us to address this, you know, national pandemic that we're dealing with. But now let's talk about hospitals and health systems because we work with them and, and they're doing a lot of different things now too, right? What are you seeing, Reed? Yeah, we're seeing a number of different things. The fact that I work for an organization that specifically does a lot of crisis communication work, certainly we're, some of us are more involved in this than others. A couple of things that I'm seeing is obviously there's a lot more content going out on social because that's the easiest way to try to update people, specifically around things like changing visitor policies or putting on hold education events, tours like labor and delivery tours, things like that, but specifically having to have conversations and communicate around the visitor policy piece, I think has been the most interesting one to watch uh, people's reaction to. Social media is an interesting tool in in the way that it can do some real-time communications. I mean, it's obviously cascading also to websites and content and blog posts and even like positioning your experts as being available to be part of the media communications and help to kind of shape the narrative about how our communities are responding to this public health crisis that we're undergoing right now. That's very comforting to me. But when I think about marketing and healthcare marketing in this space, things have dramatically changed for people that have been traditionally in charge of quote unquote marketing. 
no one's advertising anymore. At least they shouldn't be advertising anymore. Yeah, they shouldn't be. I, I still see a fair amount of hospitals that have ads running, you know, that were running previously. So they're not launching new campaigns necessarily. But I think people have gotten so busy and they're in the trenches, if you will. It's becoming harder to remember all the things that are out there floating around, you know. We monitor and respond on behalf of hospitals and things like that. And so we're seeing people ask questions about, is this still happening? I'm expecting in June and need to come take a tour, you know, and, and things like that. And so, you know, that's one tip would be to go back and audit all your ads that are running online and make sure that uh, they make sense to still be running. Turn off stuff like the thing we advertise educational events a lot. Well, chances are you've probably put those on hold uh, slash canceled. So make sure that there's not still promotional ads, RSVP type stuff that's running for those types of things. You know, there's some things that kind of fall in the middle somewhere like uh, health risk assessments. You know, it's probably not the worst thing in the world uh, that they're running, but do we have time to respond to the people that are high risk in a timely fashion, things like that. Just think through some of those things. And if you do, great, you know, keep them running. But just think about, you know, kind of that, that promotional message that's out there. You know, and I also hear that Google is is preventing organizations from purchasing keywords and things like that around the COVID or coronavirus or what have you. And the reason why is they don't want any of this kind of exploiting of those terms and and directing traffic certain ways. And I know some health systems that are trying to share and even promote critical information to their communities about what to do to respond to this crisis. They're now struggling with the best ways to structure their those keyword ad buys and how do they get that information to the right people? Because I mean, just Google coronavirus and you'll see there's so much information that's out there. Now, luckily, one of the articles that um, we're going to link to in the show notes talks about what big tech companies are doing to try to prevent coronavirus misinformation. And, you know, they're doing the, the standard things. They're trying to prioritize authoritative content to the top of the search results. They even have like a little using, uh, taking advantage of the Google knowledge graph. Google is starting to put information up there that's relevant and timely. That's important. That's a first step. But it just lays out the fact that in within maybe a month, the role of a healthcare marketer has completely changed. Their day-to-day jobs have completely changed. And today, we, I think we should talk about what is the role of marketing in a public health crisis? We want to start first with um, blog posts that our friend Dan Dunlop posted. That's actually a repost of Kelly David, who works within healthcare, and she posted it on Facebook. And she talked about what her life is like now. So a lot of people obviously know Kelly and uh, probably follow her and may have even read this on Facebook or or on Dan's uh, blog. If you haven't, obviously we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, You know, she was posting as kind of a response to everybody that was asking her, probably mostly through Facebook, how are things going? How can I help? You know, that, that type thing. Her response is really about, it's not that I'm being rude or don't want to respond or, you know, things like that, but here's my reality. And so she talks about, I'm not working from home. You know, I'm up at the hospital and I'm actually staying there. So I'm not, so I don't disturb my family, leaving early, coming home late. You know, I'm working seven days a week and, you know, putting in, you know, all these extra hours is uh, part of our kind of uh, administrative team. 
She even created an Outlook folder that's actually called Follow Up After COVID. A lot of these initiatives, a lot of work with vendors, other contacts, she just can't get to them right now. And my heart goes out to to her and others like her because what they're doing now is they're focusing on the things that are very critical, important, and marketing has shifted to being more of a communications support platform now, um, particularly to help amplify the relevant messages to people in their communities. We have to keep that in mind as professionals. You know, this is not the time to consider a new like CRM initiative or, you know, doing a big digital transformation effort. Obviously, you have to make sure your website's up to date, but even huge website transformation efforts are probably put on hold, at least for the short term, until we can get through this this public health crisis. Anything that's taking a lot of time away from communicating with employees, uh, with physicians, with the general public, you know, et cetera, um, is, is probably not time well spent right now, um, you know, because you're needing to get stuff up on the website, on social, through internal communication tools, et cetera. We're at an interesting place. Not that we didn't have people asking questions on Facebook or writing reviews that we needed to respond to, but they were at a cadence we had kind of gotten used to probably within our organization. There were little spikes here and there. If an employee did something they shouldn't have done, you know, or posted somewhere they shouldn't have posted, and you kind of get a little influx of folks that are upset or mad about that or something in the community happens, you know, that kind of thing. But from for a sustained period of time like we're seeing now, uh, we probably have not... Um, seen this. You think about, okay, we changed visitor policies at most of our hospitals, I would assume at this, at this point, canceled elective procedures or, you know, different things. So anyway, the point being is there's information you've put up online and people have different reactions to that. As I've noticed, you know, a lot of people are like, thanks for protecting us. Thanks for the update. Makes total sense. And then some people, which I, I, I mean, I get, but I don't get, you know, you put the restricted visitor policy up and people are like, you can't tell me that if I have a loved one in, in the ICU that we can't come see them. And it's like, well, your loved one in the ICU is exactly who we're trying to protect. But we've gotten to a place, I think, as a society that our initial response is, it's about me, right? Like, how does this affect me? And I get it. You've got this loved one. Well, maybe I don't get it. Maybe I don't get it. But there's a loved one in the hospital. You want to go see them. It's just not that simple. It's not that black and white anymore, at least for a period of time. And so you've got this whole world where you're trying to respond and reflect and get stuff approved from people that are already busy because every question's a little bit different. You know, I'm coming in to have a baby. Is a doula considered a healthcare professional or a visitor? You know, just all these things that you don't think about, right? And it causes us to really genuflect on the role of marketing and what what marketing's purpose in healthcare really means. And it actually springs to mind something that I like to define as big M marketing. Let's talk about that concept of big M marketing and also kind of drill into the role of marketing during a public health crisis right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, Live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, 
Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so let's jump into a couple of things here. First, let's level set. I, you found a, uh, this actually, I mean, I guess it's an article, but it's technically a journal entry, looks like, uh, called The Impact of Marketing Strategies in Healthcare from the uh, Journal of Medicine and Life. Again, we'll, we'll link to that uh, in the show notes, but it's uh, talking specifically about healthcare marketing. The Journal of Medicine and Life actually comes from the National Institute of Health. So this is a government website we're referring to. They kind of talk about, again, this concept that I'm colloquially terming, which is big M marketing. And they, they start off by saying, the, as the philosophy and marketing techniques in other fields are having trouble finding applicability in healthcare services, healthcare needed to find a different approach to market themselves. This approach was an interdisciplinary approach to using concepts, methods, and techniques that are both classical and social marketing techniques. So when I say that, Reed, what what do you think about that? I mean, this is kind of like a very lofty way of talking about how we market in healthcare. It's talking about, you know, the applicability of in healthcare from like traditional marketing techniques. It makes me think of like conversations I've had with people over the course of my career when they say, what do you do? You know, like at church or some social setting or something like that. And I used to say I market hospitals or I'm a marketing guy for hospitals or whatever, you know, something like that. And I would always get this quizzical like, huh, hospitals market themselves? Like it didn't, it didn't even dawn on people that like that would be a thing. And I'd say, well, yeah, I mean, we they have services they offer that are not episodic because most people I ran into were probably young professionals or younger and they're, you know, and they probably haven't had a lot of dealings with the healthcare system outside of maybe having a baby. And so, you know, they sit there and they think, well, like, what would you market? Right. It's, and in this journal article actually says an, an effective approach for marketing really should involve an in-depth investigation of the patient's needs. Okay, now we've talked about that before. And identifying some of those latent needs and offering health services that can support those needs, maybe ones that patients themselves have not explicitly requested. Now, to me, when you, when we describe it that way, that is a way of actually saying what we're trying to do is understand our customers better and help them find the right levels of care at particular times. Now, to me, when I describe it that way, it that doesn't sound like marketing at all. But in effect, it is marketing. The idea that it differs because of the demand, right? So we've got that, like I just talked about, the episodic piece. So like, do we not market things like the ER? Is that a bad idea? I, I don't know that I want to answer that question right this second. I've got my own opinions on some of that. So it's like, well, no, you shouldn't market the ER. I mean, people are going to come there regardless. Well, but what about like trauma services and the level of trauma care and some of those types of things? Or, you know, if you're having a baby, like, you know, this is coming and maybe you're high risk, right? You're at advanced age. Maybe you're having multiples. I don't know, whatever the scenario is, what do you need to be looking for? What hospitals should be telling you? It's just not a transaction. Like the email I get from Kohlhein about there's 30% off at the outlet, click here. That's pretty straightforward. 
healthcare in, in hospitals specifically, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's a strange place to be because I don't know what I might need yet or in the future. And again, it centers on understanding that customer. This article, they outline actually um, a number of trends, about six trends here that healthcare marketing has adopted to over the last decade. They sound very familiar to us, right? From a mass marketing approach to a more specific approach, going from broadcast to targeted, right? Is that translated in our language? That what that means? It's less brand campaigns and it's these super highly specific things to certain personas that, you know, that they're going to be interested in. Sure. Okay. From image marketing to service marketing. I would argue image marketing may still be there through branding, right? But really about service and utility is a big part of this, right? It is. I, I think there still is a place for brand marketing, especially in, in certain mark, highly competitive markets. Um, obviously, that varies a little bit uh, on the intensity based on you know who we're talking about, where they are, who they serve, that kind of thing. But it's still there. Okay. How about this one? From a one measure for all approach to personalization. No disagreements there. Uh, from an emph- emphasis on a health episode to a long lasting relationship. Well, that, that goes right back to what I just said. Like, I don't know what I'm going to need. From ignoring the market to developing in-depth market intelligence. Right now, we've talked about data and analytics. And in fact, the uh, interview later on in this episode actually will go into how to use data to drive intelligent you know, decisions to, to help uh, uh, guide customers to the right places. And then the last trend they say is going from low tech to high tech. Uh-oh. In this particular case, I think they're talking about marketing tactics, right? They're not talking about like promoting high-tech options. Obviously, um, technology is a big piece of this, but it's going from billboards, print ads to more high-tech touch points. Yeah. No, it makes total sense. Well, before we get to that interview, let's let's jump into one more article maybe uh, that you found. And this is at uh, healthypeople.gov. No, a show full of government websites today. I know. Well, I, I interesting. <laughs> this is actually from the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, or the ODPHP. Wow. And it's called Health Communication and Health Information Technology. This particular article, Health Communication and Health Information Technology, they say the goal of the article was to use health information strategies and health information technology to improve population health outcomes and the health care quality and to achieve health uh, equity. And effectively using those techniques together, it can bring about a patient and public-centered health information and services. And really, there's a huge potential here that they talk about, which sounds like you're either talking about marketing, or you're talking about communications, or you're talking about population health, or maybe we're talking about all of these things together, right? Um, improving healthcare quality and safety. Increase the efficiency of uh, healthcare and public health service delivery. So again, quality and safety, and now actually the delivery of service. Here's another one that's a little bit different, but um, it it can relate. Improve the public health information infrastructure. If anything, today's day and age, that's what a lot of health systems are doing. They're communicating about public health information. What we're going through right now is a great indication of like, well, where do you get your information? Like, how do you know what you're getting is true? I mean, I can't tell me text messages I've got at this point that I go, okay, where did they copy and paste this from? This is not happening. We're not doing this, you know. Anyway, uh, support care in the community and at home. Uh, so again, kind of an interesting thought process of, 
you know, how does that, that care come to you, not just you go to the care, if you will? And facilitate clinical and consumer decision-making. Okay, now communications is supposed to help them with deciding the right places to go. Should I go to a telehealth initiative to do my, my screening to determine if I actually am symptomatic of COVID, for example? This is exactly in alignment with what we're doing. And then finally, they point out uh, that there's a potential to help build health skills and knowledge, which again, um, kind of goes back to that decision-making piece. The article goes on to point out that there's like this, there's a lot of health information technology that's available and that it's made the relationship with the consumer or the, the patient, so to speak, and the health system that much more complex. And part of what we're trying to do is use communication and marketing as a way to reduce that complexity and allow people to navigate through a very complex landscape. That resonates with me a lot. We've talked a lot about uh, on previous shows, and uh, I know like the intersection is covered a lot with the social determinants of health, um, because they're talking here about the disparities in access to health information, services, technology that can, you know, obviously it results in lower utilization uh, of preventative services. Obviously, people from a knowledge standpoint or even disease, chronic disease management. Uh, you know, if you don't have access to this stuff, well, then of course you don't have the right information. You can't make the right decisions. <laughs> Everything that we talked about in those bullets, right? So it leads to what? Higher rates of hospitalization. And, you know, we just don't know how people are doing. The article then goes on to outline emerging trends that they're seeing in the space. A big part of this is they're saying that the internet and other technologies will help to streamline the delivery of health information and services. But we also have to keep in mind that many of our patients may have limited literary skills, literacy skills, or experience using the internet. And what we have to do is we really have to apply user-centered design in alignment with application of evidence-based practices to kind of support that. Because some of the trends that we're seeing that they outline here, we all kind of know about it, but we have to keep those in mind as we're designing the solutions. So think of, so list out some of the emerging trends that we're seeing, Reed. The speed, scope, and scale of the adoption of health IT uh, will only increase. I mean, obviously, um, we're seeing the need for telemedicine as we stand right now. Makes it more complex. Here's another one, right? Social media and other emerging technologies promise to blur the line between expert and peer health information. And if you want any ex example of that, just go to Facebook right now and see how many of our experts that were experts on government a couple months ago are now experts on health, public health, right? Yeah, they were huge policy uh, wonks uh, a couple of weeks ago, and now they're uh, apparently uh, really tight with CDC, I guess. I don't know. Another one here they list uh, monitoring and accessing the impact of new media, uh, including mobile health uh, on public health, uh, will be challenging. I don't know the impact of, of some of this um, it, because it's just coming at us so fast. It, it will be a challenge to really understand uh, you know, what that's meant to us. And again, new technologies can potentially make it more complex. Lastly, they say there's an increased trend of helping health professionals and public adapt to the changes in healthcare quality and efficiency due to the creative use of communication and health IT. And I think that this speaks to the fact that we're getting now more access to a lot of information about our health 
that probably makes us hypersensitive to our health. And we have to now adopt our approaches to marketing and communications to help people make sense of it all. Maybe that cough that you're having is not COVID-19. Maybe it is just seasonal allergies. We have a responsibility as healthcare professionals to kind of address that, right? And, and, and be in front of that conversation. So with that, I think that this might be a good point for us to kind of turn it over to one of our experts that Chris Hemphill, who's been listening to the show for a very long time, and he's with Symphony RM, a company that uses data and analytics to help organizations, healthcare organizations make really good decisions. He and I had a chance to talk just this week about some of the work that he's been doing recently over the last couple of weeks, using data and analytics to help organizations make the right choices when they're communicating to their audiences to guide them to the right care, particularly in this day and age of of our pandemic response. So let's jump to that. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today I am talking with a good dear friend of mine. I, Chris, you and I have gotten to know each other over the years. And I know that you also are a fan of our show. So I'm so excited to have you here today. Chris Hempel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. I hope it doesn't get confusing with us having the same name. We'll manage through it. I think so. I think it'll be fine. Um, so Chris, I, like I said, I've known you for a number of years now, and I'm very excited about some of your background and history, but some people listening in may not know about that. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your experience in this space? My background started in uh, sales and operations at a healthcare analytics firm. In that time, the questions as they became more and more complex and I, of course, was interested in all the, the stuff that I had studied in economics and things like that uh, back in college. It required some additional expertise. So at the same time, as we were trying to identify which hospitals were most likely to make which types of movements and things like that, it required uh, deeper analytics to things like decision trees and random forests and things like that. So ultimately, ended up uh, going down a data science path working with uh, currently with uh, Symphony RM as the uh, director of AI and analytics on the client facing side. So the background and focus is now on helping health systems to evaluate data products and understand how to make uh, good decisions with data products and also performing uh, data science and analytics on things like what's the value of uh, physician outreach meetings to uh, referrals and other patterns that, that we might want to see from physicians or, or learn from, our, from physicians in our market? Or what are the implications of certain types of appointments or different social determinants in terms of people's likelihood to not show up for appointments and things like that? So went from an internal sales and operations side to a more client-facing data science end I think that's awesome. And, and that's another reason why I think you and I connect because we're both data nerds at heart, right? We uh, we like data and analytics to drive decision-making. I think that's awesome. And I think that, you know, in many cases, as you and I know, working with hospitals and health systems over the years, that is sometimes a little bit of a challenge because most people that are in the marketing or in communications or even population health or wherever they may be, that may not be their first leaning, right? They might not lean towards analytics or data. Yet in this day and age, data and analytics is so proliferous, right? We have so much information that's out there. It's just really making sense of what to do with that data. Is that fair to say? That's a billion percent fair to say. 
the, the way that I see it is uh, we've basically gotten a deluge of data starting in 2009 with, with meaningful use. And the, the issue is we're acquiring all these different data sources. It lives in a bunch of different places. And even when we unite, the, uh, unite everything in, ter- in terms of an EDW, there's still hundreds of thousands of patients and, well, and, and hundreds of characteristics that need to be compared and uh, considered to determine who's the most likely candidate to, to need this type of communication or who's most likely to no-show for an appointment. Even though we have the data at our fingertips, when we get to the issue of combining it from the multiple sources that it might be from our marketing automation systems or EMRs or uh, data that comes in uh, through claims or other third-party sources, when it comes to making sense of all that data, we're completely at a loss if, if we're going to ask marketers to wear an additional hat as a data scientist slash data engineer. So completely agree that we're, we've, we've been deluged by data and even having that data over these years, it's been extremely hard for most organizations to make sense of it and use of it for the value of the patient. You actually had an interesting point how healthcare marketers don't necessarily have to become data scientists. You, you actually refer to them as data enthusiasts. So I'm interested in um, exploring that with you today in, the, in today's conversation. I, I reached out to you because I read this really interesting article that you posted on LinkedIn. You also have it on the blog at Symphony RM that's called Hospital Marketing with Algorithms Aim Higher Than Netflix. Can you uh, start off and maybe share a little bit of your thoughts of what, what, what inspired you to, to write this blog post? Yeah, yeah, let's go into that. And, and it really ties into uh, the, the whole data enthusiast concept. To train to become a data scientist, uh, it requires picking up uh, uh, a lot of skills um, in terms of statistics, in terms of programming, and being able to use those to, to extract value from a bunch of different data sources. To be called artificial intelligence is a very hands-on process. What marketers are, are being asked to do across multiple data sources, it's simply not tenable to take somebody whose expertise is in fostering communications uh, to then say, okay, learn Python, R, SAS, all these other, other platforms, and learn all these various packages that are related to data science and uh, start extracting meaning from that. The time spent there would be better spent understanding fostering relationships and managing, ma- managing content. But it's still necessary because of, uh, because of the analytics component. With all these requirements around data, uh, becoming a data enthusiast means not necessarily picking up a programming language and, and going into detail and learning all these things, but really as a decision maker or as a leader in healthcare, understand that the role of data is, is extremely important in healthcare in terms of, uh, like when I said aim higher than Netflix, not a slight on Netflix or anything like that, but what Netflix is optimizing for is for you to watch as much content as possible for as long as possible. So it's, it's optimizing for you to click and uh, to, to click as much as you can and, and stay watching as much as you can so they can maximize their revenue. In healthcare, especially with the proliferation of value-based care, the idea isn't necessarily to get as much content as possible, but to aim patients at the care that is going to give them the best outcomes. That, that's not saying we, we want people to have as many repeats visits as possible and things like that. That, that would be like the, the older way of thinking. But the newer way of thinking is getting the right care to the right people and in the right amounts. Yeah. And that point, right, of getting the right care to the right people in the right time, right ways, right amounts, as you said, 
that really speaks to the fact that now the role of marketing is kind of shifting within a hospital and health system. And I know Reed and I have been talking about this for a long time. We as marketers have to kind of evolve from the little M marketing, which is more promotional, to what I like to call the big M marketing, which is more towards the holistic sense of trying to drive those interactions in the right way, understanding our customers better so that we can actually deliver them the information that they need. I like the way that you worded it, especially understand our customers better, because I, I kind of missed that in, in the, the previous comment. What I really wanted to focus on as a data enthusiast is how do I know whether or not I am understanding my, my uh, patients, uh, my customers better? Let, let's say that I invest in a CRM or an EMR, and it tells me that these people have risk for uh, this particular illness. There's a risk to sending out communications that are based on what that model is telling me about that patient. So let's say that uh, some that there, there's a model that identifies uh, who is likely to be at risk for or, or, or need breast cancer services in, in a particular uh, market. Well, the question then is, okay, so, well, how accurately does that model perform? And it, honestly, in, in all the evaluations that I've been a part of, I have not really seen the right questions being asked to tease out how effectively models perform. Some things that uh, like as data enthusiasts and healthcare marketers might be able to start considering are to ask the tougher questions around how well does this model perform in terms of false positives? Uh, like there, there's is a statistical term, type one error, false positive, whatever. But really when you, when you get down to it, when you ask what my false positive rate is, it's really saying, how often is this model flagging people as needing this service, but they didn't actually need this service? Because there's a chain of events that happens after you've decided to communicate with somebody uh, on the, like, with the expectation that they'll need a service. If it is a false positive, like uh, 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 excellent, excellent if, you're, if your model is finding people that have clinical need and getting, that, getting the right information and getting the right people in for the right services. But if you don't, if, if, you're, if you're telling the wrong people to come in, then they might come in for a uh, screening that might also lead to another false positive that might need to lead to unnecessary procedures and lack of trust in the healthcare organization and in the communications that are coming from that organization. And all this talk about false positives, et cetera, I mean, I can't help but kind of parallel it against our current day day and age, right, Chris, where we're dealing with COVID responses and, we're, and communication is becoming very critical with our audiences. Is that resonating with you as well? Yeah, 100%, Chris. Uh, that, that, that really hits on a, a really close topic because the amount of testing that we're able to do in our like current state of our healthcare like ideally, we'd be like we'd be able to uh, test for, uh, test everyone like South Korea. But current state is there are limitations. We were talking a little bit beforehand, and you were talking about a limitation. A certain healthcare entity they could only test for five hundred a day. So the question then is, which five hundred people should receive tests? Because if we're targeting the entire market, like basically we, we have a much more demand than test available. So it, it becomes a question of we, we don't want to target the wrong people to have these tests because then there's a cost that if we're, we'll actually get into an, another topic, false negatives, which are people who have a clinical need that miss out on those communications. So when you say that, what do you mean exactly? Just as a contrast, a false positive is saying, hey, you need this thing. And it turns out you didn't need this thing. A false negative is saying, 
this person doesn't need this communication. So we're not even going to send out any, we're not going to send anything uh, to them anyway, but then it turns out that they actually did need the communication. Part of the modeling process and part, uh, part of the data science aspect is to run tests that identify the, like based on all the parameters, everything that somebody's setting up to uh, identify patients, whether it be simply like taking some, uh, some, like slicing and dicing based on, based on some clinical information or creating an AI model that scores millions of patients and, and uh, does the calculation that way. At the end of the day, you still need to, uh, you still need to have an understanding of how often does this model falsely flag the people that, uh, people that don't need the services and how much is the opportunity cost with a high false negative rate What's, what the cost there is, is that you're not communicating to people that have a, a specific clinical need. So in that case, there are people that have need or, or market opportunity that the model is missing. So it's important to understand in an evaluation of a model of uh, an AI approach to reach patients, what the false positive and what the false negative rate is. So I think that that concept of false positives and false negatives is critical and it's important. And it also kind of outlines the fact that now marketing is extending to like things like population health and other other segments. But before we get into that, in this blog post, you actually outlined some other questions that we need to ask of the data, which I like the way you phrased that, right? With the questions we need to ask of the data. One of the things is you, you, you outlined was about right consumption, right? Clinical necessary preventions and interventions. Um, and I think that, that that speaks to understanding also, not only if they there is a need, but the right type of, of consumption of that service or that need that a hospital provides. That's where the modeling and uh, like the, the use of the algorithms and AI stands in stark contrast to what we see from uh, quote unquote consumer type industries. When we're talking about encouraging the right consumption, we're not trying to uh, get people to get the most constantly. Like healthcare is not, and especially with the move to value-based care, health, healthcare is not about getting people to consume absolutely as much as possible. It's about understanding what people's specific clinical needs are or what they're most likely at risk for. And taking the, like understanding that far enough ahead of time so that preventive measures such as education or uh, such as particular types of screenings or early interventions can occur before this ends up being something that is more costly to the patient and more costly to the health system over time. So we're not trying to sell the most. We're not trying to put the most out there in healthcare. The stark difference, the, the one thing that you'd want to take from that article is that it's not about optimizing for clicks or anything like that. It's about delivering very specific interventions to specific populations. And I think that's really important. And then one last point that you also brought up is about bias in data. And, and I know Reed and I have kind of hit on that before, but talk to me about your perspective about how do we make sure that our data is not biased based against socioeconomic factors? What are some, some examples that you've had uh, doing that? There's a couple of biases that, that could come into play. The three that I would focus on in terms of bias are cherry picking, survivorship bias, and the McNamara fallacy. Cherry picking is the tendency to go into the data with the question already answered in our mind. And we use the data to look for the answer that we want. There's a lot of cases where people will mistrust numbers, especially like if, if you're presenting to somebody who's in 
finance or has a, a has a highly data driven background, they'll start asking questions that uncover the fact that maybe cherry picking may have occurred. And if if they don't ask those questions, then the harm is decisions are are made off of uh, you know something where we brought our own confirmation bias, like we looked looked through data and brought our own confirmation bias to the table. Survivorship bias is the idea. Uh, so I'll, I like to bring up this analogy. In World War II, someone was asked to uh, inspect British airplanes that had uh, come back and identify where the bullet holes were so they could, dep- so they could identify where to place additional armor so that uh, you know, the, those planes that came back with those bullet holes, they knew that, like, they were basically using data to say, okay, well, we'll protect against those places. So, so the problem with that approach is if they're looking at the planes that came back, this is survivorship bias, by the way, if they're looking at the planes that came back and looking at where to put those bullet holes, uh, well, where to put the armor, and that they're using uh, where they were shot to uh, determine where to put the armor, then they're missing out on the whole population of planes that didn't come back, that didn't make it through the process. The challenge, like ultimately, the data you get within healthcare is going to be biased towards the people that were able to make it in for a particular illness. If whatever social factors keep you from thinking that it's acceptable to go to a to go to a health, uh, go to a hospital, or you don't think that you can afford it, then that takes you out of the analysis that that's that's being performed. It leads to some very powerful ethical questions for what what happens in in data driven marketing. And as marketers, the, the biggest piece of advice is to understand. Uh, you know, like, is to understand the socio socioeconomic factors that that lead to people coming in for care and um, identify like basically like when, when modeling the focus is to only uh, is to like develop models that are based specifically on clinical factors but then do outreach that's based on socioeconomic factors I, I love the analogy Chris that you're that you're bringing up and it really uh, you know that leads to a big point here that you have that is sort of an underlying theme I think that you're you're kind of presenting here is that as you highlighted in the article you said technology should make complex hospital marketing demands simple that kind of leads to this topic that you and I have talked about too which is simplexity a kind of a little buzz term there but what are your thoughts on that like how do we how do we take such a complex data model that you're outlining and really make it to uh, simplify it so to speak also yeah also a really good question because we we started out by saying that a marketer should not go and what well, should not be expected to go and get a phd in data science so that's Point number one is that, that there's a ton of complexity there. If every marketer was spending all their time doing those tasks, then they don't have the time to uh, forge relationships, manage content strategy, and all the other things that are important to making an outreach strategy work. When it comes to that, basically, there's, uh, I think the easiest way to say it is that there are uh, three overarching types of analytics. There's the, the descriptive analytics, which say, uh, this is the average number of patients that we see per day, and this is the, uh, the their average age range, and everything like that. That's basically saying th- this is what is. Then there's predictive analytics, which predictive analytics is saying, okay, so based on the demographics of this area, we expect these people will come in at this rate to these particular centers. Okay, so we're making predictions. But the value, the value really comes from not just like describing and understanding the market and knowing what's going to happen. But the next phase is prescriptive analytics. That's where actions come in, is understanding, given all these criteria, given this complex information that we have on the contracts that we're serving, the value-based 
slash fee for fee for service balance that we're trying to walk and the characteristics of the patients in this particular market, the risk factors for particular illnesses or their likelihood to respond to email versus text. Given all that information, give, give, uh, given everything that we have, what's the most critical point that if we had 30 seconds to make a decision on, on, on what somebody should do next, what the, what's the most critical point that should be positioned for that patient? So it's an understanding of taking all that complexity all those risk factors and everything like that, and turning it into next steps and actions. Direct this person to this webinar or send this person this email or defer this appointment to a time that would be safer for them based on the volume of uh, patients that we're getting that might have COVID risk. Like it's taking all those complex factors and turning them into simple steps that marketers, population health, physician outreach should be uh, positioning for their constituents. That kind of underscores the entire conversation that we've been having here, right, about how we can use this rich sets of data and this better understanding of our customers to help them uh, guide them to the right the right types of care. Right. And this isn't this isn't about like salesy marketing. Now, what we're talking about is actually using data, AI, et cetera, to, to align them to where to the right kind of care options. And that sets that premise of what we started this conversation with, Chris. I think this is really, really fascinating. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know a lot of people listening in may want to learn a little bit more about you and, and also about the company that you work for. What are some ways that they can reach out to you online? There's LinkedIn, Chris Hemphill on, on LinkedIn. And if you want a little bit of the snarkier side on Twitter as Luke underscore trail runner. It's always good to have that. And, and then your your website, Symphony RM, for sure, we'll link to, including the blog post that we've been talking about. Chris, this has been a really interesting conversation and really fascinating. And I'm so glad that we had a chance to sit down today and talk about it. I really appreciate it. Ever since posting that blog and, so, and some of the comments that I got, the passion here is if we're if we get to where we're reducing those false positives, the outreach that we really shouldn't be doing and reducing those false negatives. Like I, I think that by focusing on those, ma- those metrics, it can help marketing regain trust in, in the community. And that's such a timely topic in, you know, in this crazy times that we live in. We can't abandon that, that we're living in a whole new era now where that becomes super critical. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And let's have you back on. Okay. All right. Thank you. Special thanks to Chris Hemphill from Symphony RM for coming on and sharing a bit of knowledge. I think it's uh, pretty fascinating what uh, you can do with data. It's, it's always cool to see. I uh, have other great examples. This is usually the part in the show where we talk about all the conferences, most of which at this point are on hold or in some state of moving to a virtual delivery mechanism slash dates later to be determined. So. Anyway, keep an eye out for that. If you want, uh, we would encourage you to subscribe to the TPS Reports weekly email that comes out. We, we you know, obviously will list all conferences and things like that. The one that uh, we do have a date for, because it's been virtual all along, is uh, the Mayo Clinic Conference in June. And I think, uh, Chris, you got a little bit of information on that, right? Sure. Yeah. So June 2nd and June 3rd is when the conference is. Um, there is a link out there on the Shishmid website. We'll link to it in the show notes. It is a virtual conference and it's about social media and digital. And in fact, I will be doing a keynote 
presentation, virtual presentation, that's called Beyond Posting, Using Social to Boost Marketing, Strengthen the Consumer Customer Journey, and Break Down Silos. So you can go out to the, the link in the show notes, and you can register for this. It's a joint virtual conference between the Mayo Clinic and Shishman, and it promises to be interesting. There's a couple other uh, speakers here that are, are lined up, but more speakers are going to be announced, and I'm looking forward to it. Very cool. Um, Touch1.health is the website. Be sure to go out there and uh, check out the other shows. And then before we get out of here, let's uh, do a couple of recommendations. What do you, what do you have today? Because we are kind of all stuck at home and we are kind of forced to entertain ourselves online, I am going to recommend something that we just recently introduced to our household because we were going we're going cable free, which is a Roku device. We decided we're going to cut the cable and get a Roku device. We love it. Uh, it plugs into the HDMI port on our TV. And it streams from the internet a variety of different things. You can set up a variety of different channels. They have a number of free channels that are there. We also, kind of a sub-recommendation, we decided to get real-time TV. We decided to subscribe to YouTube TV as our option. That gives us uh, real sport, real-time sports as well as news and a lot of other great channels that we didn't expect, right, that came along with it. So that coupled with our Hulu and our Netflix and our Amazon Prime and a variety of other free sources, that is become now our viewing hub here in the Boyer household and I'm going to recommend it strongly for people. You know, maybe now's not the time to change, but if you are looking to cut the cord, get a Roku device. I recommend it highly. Very nice. Yeah, we're a YouTube TV subscribers. I've been really pleased with that. So it's a good recommendation. Uh, I'm going to recommend something a little bit different. It is uh, washyourlyrics.com. So everybody's seen the wash your hands poster, you know, with the, like the different little um, infographic with the different little um, descriptions and diagrams on how to wash your hands. Well, you can go here and add your favorite song lyrics to said poster and then uh, save it. So it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. And all you have to do is know the song title and the artist and it will auto generate it for you uh, with those. We've been doing that as an office because everybody's virtual. So this was one of our stay connected things one day was like, hey, everybody go do this and share your, you know, wash your hand poster, uh, which were a lot of them were really funny. So um, anyway, so you want your own wash your hands uh, poster, washyourlyrics.com. I love that site. What is, what is the one song you use to wash your hands with, Reed? I used, uh, this is how you do it by Montel Jordan. I think that's what I plugged in. For me, it was Toto's Africa, and it works out really well. So I hum that along every time I wash my hands. So that's awesome. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for being a supporter of the network. We certainly appreciate it. Look for uh, all the uh, great content coming out on the network. All the different show hosts are working hard to put out. Obviously, timely content as it relates to... Uh, COVID-19 right now. We've got some really cool episodes on the network. You can go check out certainly over at the website. Uh, support them as well. So for this Warrior, I'm Reed Smith. We'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.